0: Welcome to episode 14 of Talking Dirty. Over at East and Old Vicarage, we have the inimitable, the happy, the handsome horticulturalist that is Alan Edward
1: Herbert Gray.
0: How are you? Ooh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. And down in Cambridgeshire, we have Thorbees. Uh, I have to look, Maria, Sophia, Friedrichsen. Um, you know, those, those names remind me, the two middle names remind me of Italy somehow or other, Sossio and Maria.
0: I mean, I'm very, a very big fan of pasta, but I think that might be as close <laughs>
1: as any Italian connections
0: go. Uh, also joining us, we are delighted that he's back. He's very hard <laughs> man because he's a busy horticulturalist. We have the plant doctor himself,
2: our Get Gardening co-conspirator, Ian Roof. Hello, team. How are we? How are Scott we? Ruth, I should say, Scott Roof. Well, only because I thought it sounded like it's like um, Graham Stewart Thomas. I thought I'd follow in that great tradition of adding something extra.
0: <laughs> now I know that your world has been quite hedge centric at the moment. I saw an amazing photo from you on Twitter at
2: allen's Garden, a view from the top of the hedge. Uh, Well it's a little feature that was started by uh, a fellow gardener called Kenny and he does view from the top of the hedge and so I thought well it's quite a nice feature actually this time of year because a lot of us are hedge cutting and so I thought I'd join in and of course I do do quite a bit of work for uh, Mr Gray and the view uh, was from the top of a, a large ladder at the bottom of the paper lady walk looking across the sunk garden and then up to the U court and then also up to the exotic garden and i must confess it was just beautiful and the sunlight on it the warmth in the sun was just fantastic and it was it was perfect and i should have tagged alan in actually i must send it to him because it just looks you know, the, the contrasting shapes the textures those castigate golden you, the brickwork, it really, I mean, I think it's wonderful, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, I'll have to send it to you, dear chap, because it looks spectacular, and the weather's been changeable, but I caught it just in the right lights, and it's a thing I do now, every day I'm at yours, every morning, I do view from a hedge, and I send it round to people in a little <laughs> WhatsApp group I've got. But this time I thought I'll do it on Twitter uh, because Kenny does it. He gardens up in North Norfolk and he's always got, they've got these lovely yew hedges at the garden he's in. I mean, they're not as precise as ours. They've obviously been left to get very sort of soft and billowing. And he tends to sculpt them with all the, the curves and the undulations. And I do like a nice clipped hedge, as you know. Mm. Uh, you know and, and we all do but there is something quite lovely when the hedges just have that wonderful very sinuous it's organic sort of, quality I think yeah yeah lovely lovely well thanks for that thunder because I was really pleased with that it just looked spectacular
0: and I think when you're much more of a newer gardener like I am and also you're sort of stumbling your way through creating a new garden you see something like that and you realize the importance
2: of those structures well I think that's something that's really prevalent to Allens in particular and because the garden is you know, based on that arts and craft style and the arts and crafts was so strong on things that structures in your garden not only be beautiful, but they should be functional um, as well. But I think you know, that ornate brickwork is really lovely, those different levels. And I think why that picture works so well is because you've got that soft, soft, red brickwork. You've got wonderful billowing plants, but you've got good, strong lines, good fastigiate yews, good, strong uprights. And I think we don't use those sort of shapes enough in gardens, whether it's something like Juniperus Skyrocket, for example, or you like the Italian cypress, but they don't always cope well with our British climates or it's just I mean, yew is wonderful. You know and it's such a wonderful plant to use, it's long-lived, it it gives that good upright and it takes me back to something Alan was, was speaking to Beth Chateau years ago, she always said to him don't forget to paint the sky, you've got not just your plot on the ground, you've got all that space going up, so you might as well use it, mightn't you? You might as well use it but the only thing I would say is that it
1: does take time and it takes it really does take about 20 years. I don't want to put anybody off planting um, hedges <laughs> and uprights and accents and all those things. But it does take about 20 years before you you see the results of your labor. But boy, when you do, does it does it matter? Yes, it does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and to go back to the idea of the tree, I know they've come up, particularly in answers to, to questions that come in on the podcast. For people who are gardening in a smaller space that is a great way of being able to bring an upright in without it completely
2: taking over and shading out the rest of your garden it, it is it is and uh, there's a, some particularly good uprights that alan uses at his place which is a lovely Quercus palustris called green pillar um which i know you and graham have planted in the perfume corridor and that's particularly lovely and a lovely upright oak pin oak good glossy foliage great autumn color um i mean, Autumn colour is dependent on the sort of you know weather we get in the autumn before, the summer before really, but but good autumn colour. And I've just bought to try out a lovely new quite fastidiate hornbeam as well called Lucas, which is recommended by Richard, a nursery friend of Alan's, who's really good and I think that will be good as well. And There's a lot of problem with people not wanting to plant trees and particularly because gardens are much closer and new builds can be very snug. I think It's a really nice way to soften up buildings around as well, and as you say, get that vertical height in. There's a great um, there's tulip trees, Adam. And you've got some wonderful tulip trees, haven't you, that are really good enough? Yes, yes, you took the suckers off them the other day, didn't you? Yeah, you we didn't. To... Graham, Graham had seen them cut, hadn't he, quite tight back? And so, yeah. we, we cut them back every, every sort of maybe five years now. We'll cut them back quite hard to keep them that nice column,
1: That nice columnar shape. Yeah, I know that when we first cut them back, there was a tree surgeon that came to the garden, he was practically in tears. <laughs> <laughs> because you thought we destroyed these wonderful trees. And they did look a bit gaunt, I have to say, but they have recovered um, very, very well. But it's our fault because we neglected to trim them um, before. We should have trimmed them earlier to, to keep their youthfulness, I suppose, if you like. And I think that's a great thing with lots of fastidious trees, even you, because occasionally you'll get um, a, a branch of you that goes up and then it will fall outwards in the wind or something like that. And if we have snow that, that falls on them, of course, that splays them out. Um, but the great thing is, you know, Ian, because you've just uh, cut back a couple of vestigeate which, which were crushed by a falling eucalyptus in the garden here, you can cut them back and they will spring forth. Um, for instance, yeah. you, I mean, I, I, to illustrate a point, we took a fence down in the garden here, which was abutting out at the back of a yew hedge. And I said to Graham, I said, when we take that fence down, we're going to be faced with all this dead looking wood and it's not going to look very nice for a couple of years. And we did take the fence down. I was absolutely right. It looked a mess. Um, You can see all the branch work, but there was no greenery on it at all. And we're doing a little bit of irrigation there because we've got a new bed in front of it, freshly planted bed, and um, that encourages the yew to grow. And it's breaking already, I mean, we only did this earlier this year, it's breaking already and within two to three years you won't know that the fence had ever been there.
2: Yes, what wonderful
0: hedge. I think the thing with those timescales as well is it seems like such a long time, but life is always you know, rattling along a pace. And I think with gardening in particular, it just seems like all of a sudden you are three years. It's like when you talk about growing tulips from seed, it seems like a long time, but actually before you know it, it's, you've got a flowering plant.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the great things that, I mean, I'm a lot older than both of you, you're, you're mere whippersnappers. Um, and I can say this with, with, you know, the voice of experience, if you like, but there's nothing like a tree that you've planted as a sapling to remind you how old you are because you walk beneath this tree. I mean, I've got a wellingtonian planted in the front of the house and I walk past it every day. And I just look at it and I sometimes think, oh gosh, I planted that. And other times I think, you beggar, you're at least reminding <laughs> how old I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing. If you plant them and you stay in that house forever, it's gonna constantly remind you. Yes. <laughs> now, Ian, I know that you have Hidden away, squirreled around your screen, various bits and bobs
2: of show and tell. <laughs> you must be the first
0: person to do carnival dance with an apophia in each hand.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have been got some plant because obviously um, it's a, a wonderful time of, of year. And um, this is just one of them that I know Alan is a great fan of. And I've, I've got this growing in some stock beds at my parents when I was still at home I planted these stock beds up of all the plants that I really loved and were interesting and uh, I used them for talks and photos and for workshops and stuff and they're still there doing really well and this is uh, my Fofia rupari uh, which is just looking spectacular now and there must be 50 stems like this on this one plant out in the sort of stock beds at mum and dad's and it, it's looking beautiful and it does flower late and I've cut these quite short, but actually they're flowering at about four feet, um, looking really good. A few little bottom bits are dying off now, but just a spectacular plant. Full sun. These beds are not irrigated out in this um, this bit of field. They are mulched once a year, but that is it. And it just performs beautifully. And the plant itself, I cut back quite hard in the spring. And it's just wonderful. These fiery torches, I think, I hope you agree, are just spectacular. They really are.
1: Well, you know, I agree because it's one of my favorite nephophias. And it's interesting because I've got three different strains of it, all bought from different nurseries. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there's one at the end of the desert, which is decidedly different from the one that's in the walled garden. And there's one at the end of the pelly house, and that is a different shape as well. One of them is much more elongated. So whether they've been grown from seed or how they differ, why they differ, I'm not sure. But I would think possibly it's because they've been grown from seed and one particular person has grown them on and propagated that particular one, that particular strain. And that's how they differ. But they're all called Niphophia rubri.
2: I mean, it's lovely. Really, and they're a good range of, of niphophias aren't they? And I know that the RHS has just brought out a monograph on Nifofias as well. So that might be a, a new acquisition, but it'd, it'd be nice to sort of find out what some of the other cultivars in gardens like grow are. Because I think I agree with that. I think there's a lot of... Uh, plants that are named as particular things, but are probably seed raised, so you get that slight variation in them. But lovely, if you've got the space, um, it's a cracking plant and well worth growing. I was going to be back in a minute.
1: And, well, um, I grew I grew nephophias from seed once and we planted all the seedlings out along the apple walk and the variation in colour, shape, form, size was absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I didn't keep any of them because They differed so much, you know, in relation one to the other. But I mean, in those days, we were planning the garden, we were planting the garden, I didn't have time. But it might be a nice thing to do to just save some seed from nifophias and sow the seed and let them do their own thing for two or three years. And then if there's a plant you like, keep it and propagate it and name it.
2: But you do that successfully with dahlias, don't you? You've got a lot of lovely seed-raised yes. dahlias that I've seen in the yeah. garden. And that's, you know, from maybe from Dahlia coccinia or, or maybe, I don't know, chimborazo or something. But it's amazing the variety you get just from one seed head, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I mean, my particular strain is as, as uh, single flower dahlias. They're all very tall, um, so they, w- they won't fit in every garden, but they're all five, six, seven feet tall. Um, and they're all in sort of soft shades, whether it be, there's one or two crimson ones, um, kind of like, uh, mm-hmm, I suppose, black curranty, uh, purpley, red colours. Um, but most of them are sort of shades of lemon and pale pink and white and cream, and they're all suffused with streaks of other, uh, other pale colours. And they just, I just find them dreamy. I think the the shape of the flower. They've got single flowers. The petals are pointed at the top, at the top of the petal, and sometimes they flick back, sometimes they flick to the side. They just have loads of personality. And um, I was talking to two friends in the garden the other day, uh, Kit Gray Wilson and Rosie Steele, and they said, where did you get these from? And I said, well, I grew them from seed. And they said, well, you really ought to name them because they are superb. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, they're not everybody's cup of tea. Some people, you know, and nor should they be because we all like different things.
2: And I think one of the best traits about them, if I can just say the ones that are raised from seed that you've got, is that they're strong, they're robust, they don't seem to need staking and they don't fall about. And more and more I'm picking dahlias because they don't need staking and they don't tend to flop about in the border because then you get those lovely, good, strong stems and those clouds of flowers on top. The the more you've got to stake them, I think, the more they're not worth growing in my opinion I think it becomes it, it,
1: it becomes a trial to do and, and people don't want to do if you can if you can negate a job do it but because but I have to tell you my dahlias are state surreptitious yeah, yeah, they,
2: <laughs> <laughs> they are they are talking of dahlias I know you like your because I've got a little dahlia here which I picked out of the the stock beds, called American dawn which is lovely oh, I don't know if it really does it justice but it's sort of a a sort of apricotty peach with flecks of there's a bit of yellow and bronze in there as well and it's lovely and it's not a, a huge plant grows to about sort of two feet but it is a good flower um it has been very reliable this year um very very tough in the garden and just that wonderful sort of peachy sort of burnt colour is absolutely lovely I thought you'd like that thunder as well because it's yeah. sort of along those tones that you particularly love you know it's a sunset colour it's another no, thing it. I've got to grow <laughs> yeah it is it is it is lovely. It is lovely. Can I do one more plant? Is that okay? You, you
0: just yeah. keep going.
2: Is that I picked some of this lovely clematis, which is oh out at the moment, uh, and it's the cowslip clematis, which is currently covering the. Um, stock fencing around mum and dad's chicken run because what we tend to do is they've got a chicken run which has got a load of lovely fruit trees in as well and we've and I've filled it up with lots of sort of ornamental shrubs and stuff and things because the chickens are woodland creatures really they love to scrap about and move about and on all the fences I've covered all the fences in in climbers and things because actually stock fencing is not the most beautiful but it is actually a really good support for lots of interesting climbing plants so this at the moment is flowering away it's being cut to the ground as it is every winter we just cut the whole plant back to about a foot from the ground clean all the old stems off the off the fencing and it must have put on 20 feet this year it really has done phenomenally well and the flowers are just lovely that's soft primrose with a hint of lime in there as well it is lovely and I always thought it got its name just from looking like primroses but actually as I Remember beautifully, it smells like freshly cut primrose you'd find in February and March. I walked
1: down from the Winter Garden towards the Dome of St Paul's, which we nicknamed <laughs> an area of the garden because it's where uh, four, three, four piles meet and it's got a dome over the top and there's climbing roses and there's this clematis. Um, and it's just suddenly it's all blooming and it's just absolutely beautiful. I've got it on a chicken run as well, down at the uh, where the chickens used to be.
2: It's a great thing isn't it? And it's so easy because mm. you just cut it back hard in the spring and away it goes. That's yeah. that's particularly well, lovely. That is so well timed because I am currently trying to decide on a new clematis for my garden so thank you Ian. Ah, no that is <laughs> yeah it's it's a real cracker it really really is it really is. Um I brought some fruit as well. Uh, and I a few years ago I planted some Asian pears. I saw them it's, it's um Pyrus pyrifolia and this one is Uh, I think it's Shinoku, this one. They've got very odd names, I can't always remember, but I think it's Shinoku. And I saw these growing in a a large National Trust garden, a huge tree, I was out with uh, some mates visiting a garden, and we didn't know, hadn't seen them before. Um, And a lovely tree, um, very disease resistant, whereas all the pears and the apples this year have got quite a bit of scab. Um, a little bit of um, rust on them as well. These have got absolutely nothing. The leaves are green; they're still lush. They're now taking on some good autumn colours, and they should be fantastic. And the fruit, although looking slightly apple-like, has the sweetest, juiciest pear taste to them. Uh, and I think they're a tree which we should use much more in the UK because their disease resistance and their drought tolerance seems to be absolutely brilliant. At the moment, I've been picking these. I've got three trees. I picked an early, mid, and a late season to plant in the chicken run, and I've been harvesting these since um, end of June. Uh, and I go every time I'm over there, sort of doing bits at mum and dad's. I pick a few, and it's it, it absolutely wonderful. They keep really well. They seem to store really well, um, and they're excellent either cut with a good cheese and a bottle of red, or chuck them in <laughs> a salad for something a little bit different. You but haven't really told you,
1: lovely. you haven't said the one thing I wanted you to say.
2: Go on. The texture of the flesh. Ah, well, yes. I mean, it's almost ever so slightly a little bit, tiny bit grainy, like a, a quince, but that shouldn't put you off because um, it, it, it's it's still soft, it's still soft. It's I, thought were,
1: I, thought, I thought when I ate one, which is probably three or four years ago now, I thought they have a, t- a texture more like an apple than a pear. They're not soft and creamy like a pear is, soft and creamy. They have a, more an apple texture.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think, that, I think that's very true, very true. But, I mean, the lovely things, I think also they would probably espalier very well. Though I've got them growing as freestanding trees, I think actually they'd look wonderful espaliered. And all their new growth is tinged bronze and red yeah. as well in the spring. So that is really, really lovely. I think what, they'd what be a great ornamental flowers, tree. Then? Sorry? What colour are the flowers? They're just white with a slight hint of pink in them, just like you right. find on... Uh, any sort of pear and apple, but yeah. it's just the foliage is lovely. And I'm really glad I got them. I got them online as bare root trees and um, they've been a huge success and they're cropping very, very well. So uh, well, a I'm, real just thinking, I'm just
1: thinking to myself, if anybody wants to make a division in their garden and they'd like to buy Asian pears and espalier them against um, you know, two rods of uh, horizontal rods going across with fence posts, what a lovely thing to do because you've got, a, you've got a, um, an ornamental, bronze foliage in the spring, white flowers, and if you buy the three lots of uh, early, mid, early, mid to late, you've got June till October to harvest your Asian pears. What a lovely thing to have!
2: Yeah, and I think they should be much more, much more widely grown. I mean, um, I think I also heard that they've been grown down at River Cottage for quite a few years. But I think definitely for our eastern climate as well, where it tends to be, as a rule, much drier. So they're particularly lovely. And I've got so I keep going with plants. Yeah. Yeah. Oh goodness. Okay. <laughs> um, this is an aster, well, I think it's Simphire trichum now, but it's a lovely aster you will you will know, and I think in this light you can't quite see it properly, but it's, it's aster, or it's orpheus, which is one which is We All Grow, uh, which was um, bred by Rosie Steele, who Alan was talking about earlier, and I first saw it in her garden in Coltishall, and it's a cracker of a of an aster it it really is I'm sorry I'm going to call them asters because we all we all know that but it probably is Simphar trichum or it could be Eurybia or it could be something else by now I don't know but lovely for me it's growing in my garden here as well it's growing at about sort of four four feet in height I have had to stake it a bit this year which I haven't normally had to do but it's lovely really good um, dark rich sort of mahogany stems on here which are lovely and I think what this isn't showing you is when it's in the garden. The flowers, I think, and whether Alan, you agree, is that they're almost iridescent. They almost sort of have a sheen, a sort of soft glow to luminosity. Them, really that, <laughs> luminosity. <that's> it. Luminosity. luminosity. <laughs> so they are lovely and it doesn't seem to suffer from any mildew. Um, It will obviously be a little bit shorter if it's grown in a very, very dry soil, but that's no bad thing. Um, And for me it's been flowering for about the last month here and I have no doubt it'll keep going for another month as well, so it's just lovely to see.
1: One of the things about very tall growing asters, people are often put off by them because they do grow tall, um, but I think even in the smallest garden, you can find space for at least one. And if you don't have the, um, or you, you forget, or you don't divide them every year, which quite often that, that is what they like to be regularly divided. If you just in the spring, if you just put a put fork underneath them and you lift the crown up a little bit and break a few roots, that will stunt it. So it won't grow quite so tall. So instead of growing five feet tall, it might only grow three and a half feet tall.
0: Yeah, so there's good, a
1: little trick too. there. So it's almost
2: like a bit of root pruning, isn't it? A bit of root pruning. Yes, off. it is. Exactly. It is that.
0: amazing how quickly they clump up because I got one of these, absolutely fabulous Aster. Um, and within the space of a, a season, it's just, well, I had to cut it down to get rid of my, my sumac, which had taken over the, the bed <laughs> it was in. So I had to divide it up anyway. But it was just, it was so, the clump was so big because it was at the back of the border. I wasn't really aware of how large it had got until I kind of stepped
2: in. So yeah, I've got loads of them now. <laughs> I think it shows how versatile it is because you've got much heavier soil in Cambridge, haven't you? And yeah. it's doing well. Um, Alan's got really rich soil and it does well there. And my soil sort of over in Salhouse, where these, these comes from is much lighter and much more sandy and free drain. So it shows what a good plant it is because it'll perform really well in all those varying soil types. Which I think is brilliant. Really yeah. brilliant. Um, got a few more, few more bits, few more bits. I had to put a chrysanthemum in. Obviously, this is a lovely, lovely chrysanthemum called Cottage Garden Apricot, which I've been growing for quite a few years. I'm a, a big fan of the chrysanthemums, and I know sometimes they don't even flower until Christmas, some of them. I remember Alan saying that often Duchess of Edinburgh doesn't always flower till near Christmas, does it, Albert?
1: No, she's she's very late, she had lovely beetroot-coloured foliage, though. I mean, as the nights cool down, the temperature changes the foliage, so you get these lovely, sort of kind of messy, soft pink flowers on top of this stem with beetroot-coloured foliage. So, I mean, it's an added bonus, but it is lovely. Um, They can get a little bit messy in November and into December, but, you know if you pick them just as the flowers about to open um you can find a bunch of flowers i, I if you if you garden well you can find a bunch of flowers on uh, for your house on christmas day i know you can we've all done it
2: <laughs> and these are such good these are such good doers to be honest and i i don't think we see them enough used as, as as garden plants but they are lovely and this is out in a piece of ground which just gets mulched once a year it's never irrigated it's it's quite open sunny free draining but it's it's sociable now i know sociable as plants is often used by nurserymen for things that are invasive and that's not the case with this one it's just that it's mixing in with some biden's Hannah lemon drop it's mixing in with a bit of phy it's mixing in with some astafricartii von staffer in there as well so it's a real medley and what i love as well is that at this time of year i think and i think it's to do with the light is that i find this time of year of plants really exciting i mean i find lots of seasons exciting but there's something about the autumn that has always really inspired me and i think it's the light that means you can put oranges with bright noreen pinks and dark purples and reds and then you've got shocking orange foliage come through and it seems to be that this time of year with the light anything goes and it's so so lovely this growing to about sort of 45 centimeters 18 inches in height doesn't need any staking and it's lovely. And if, Al, you haven't got it, I'm going to bring you some if you haven't. I don't know if you grow yes, this, coffee, I'll bring some next week when I see so it. It's a it's a real stunner, a real stunner. Um, another aster, if that's all right. Another one. This is Les Moutiers, uh, which I bought a few years ago from Tim Fuller at The Plantsman's Preference. And it's a, actually a lovely shade of soft pink. Um, and it's very much like Orpheus, grows to about sort of four feet, clumps up nicely sort of mahogany burgundy stems, that sort of nice pink hinted flowers. But what you can't see here, I think, is the buds are a lovely sort of almost rich sort of um, a rich magenta almost to the buds before they come out and then what I love with the asters is as well that you get the lovely yellow bosses when the flower is ready for pollination and then when it's been pollinated the little bosses tend to turn sort of red and orange so an indicator for the insects to say well don't worry this flower's been done move on to another one but for the gardener it's an added bonus isn't it of interest we've got that lovely sort of ready orange hearts to the flowers it's a great doer it it really really is, and and what I tend to do is every sort of um, few years I plan to sort of divide this, maybe pot some to use elsewhere. But that division just reinvigorates it really. But it's it's moving nicely through these through these stock beds. Les Emutia, another another lovely Symphyr trichum, probably another one. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure if you've had this one on before. You may have had this on before. If if people have been, if Joe was on, he probably talked about this one which is um, a lovely shrub, which is Calicarpa. Has Joe mentioned it? He might have done. No. Really not. But this is this Calicarpa bordinarii giraldii profusion. Heck of a name. Um, but a, a lovely, lovely plant. Wonderful purple berries. Um, rich, rich colour. And what it's doing now as well is it's taking on that lovely foliage colour. And what will happen is that as the berries keep that lovely purple, the foliage will take on burgundies, purples, magentas, and then it will drop, and then you'll just be left with all the, the berries. And then eventually the birds will get the berries over the winter when there's not else, nothing else available, really. They will go for the purples, but it's absolutely lovely. And I've always loved this shrub. are you a fan? Are you a fan of Calicarpa?
1: Well, the callicarpas, to me, they look wonderful when they've got their purple berries on, but they're not terribly attractive when they haven't. I mean, I shouldn't be like that because I've got a big enough garden to have a few tucked away and I don't think I've got it now. I did have it. But I can't think where it is.
2: I know you've got a white buried form. Yes, we have. We moved out of the autumn borders and we renovated them and that, that went up to went up to the wood, I think, possibly. Yeah. But I don't remember seeing this purple one, but, but, it, but it is lovely because it's a relatively inexpensive shrub to buy. And these have been in at mum and dad's for about 10 years now and they're only about sort of four feet in height and spread. So it's not a fast grow. It's not slow and sluggish, <laughs> but it's not invasive in the fact that it just gets so huge and every year we just take out a couple of the oldest stems down to the base just to encourage some new growth and leave the rest and it is just a cracker and I was thinking that if you didn't like the fact it was dull the rest of the year you could plant a clematis through it or plant some annual climbers near it I mean you're a great one for doing that for using you know other plants as supports aren't you you're really good at that
1: yeah you're absolutely right Ian I I mean I I don't know I must be prejudiced against it but I think if I We've got a couple of gaps in the winter garden. Perhaps we could have groups of two or three plants there. Um, because I mean early in the winter it's going to look lovely. And as the winter goes on, the berries will disappear. But there are other plants in the winter garden that look nice and they'll take over.
2: Yeah, I think I think it is and I think probably this plant has been people have seen it probably used in municipal planting a little bit. And what often happens is once plants have been in a municipal planting scheme, for example, a, a car park or something like that, then people tend to go off them. It's like spireas are a prime example, is that spireas are are not used enough as garden plants um, anymore, but they are wonderful because you see them used in, you know, sort of local... Um, authority plantings and things then people think oh no no I, I don't want yeah. that. But get low, is Alan's running a trial aren't you Al at the moment? We fair.
1: are We are running a trial in conjunction with the Royal Articultural Society of um, spireas and there's been quite a lot of breeding work that done in the, with the genus um, in recent years so we've got some quite interesting ones to to actually trial but of course because of COVID-19 um, we were forced to cancel the trial this year and so um, I mean you know obviously we're, we're staying sensible and being Um, But it's a three year trial. Um, So hopefully in 2021 we can start again and maybe keep them on for an extra year. I don't know what the policy will be from the RHS, but I mean, whatever it is, we'll go along with it and do our best to sort of, you know, bring some of these lovely plants to um, to the notice of the gardening public again. I noticed that Tim Fuller, did you see it, Ian, Tim Fuller was <laughs> tweeting about one of the spireas, that is one of his favourite plants in the autumn, I can't remember what it is, can you? I think it was Betulifolia tour, yeah. wasn't it? It was, betulif- Betulifolias, yes. Just such lovely tones um, throughout this, this period that we're going through at the moment. And I was just sort of thinking when you were talking Ian, what, you know, how fascinating the change in, in the autumn colour and everything is, because I noticed yesterday I walked past the Hamamelis, which you'll know is in the winter yeah. garden, towards my potting shed, and, and three days ago is crammed with all these orange and red-edged, uh, yeah exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yellow leaves, um, just like you're really holding up there, um, a wand of it <laughs> yeah. and then I noticed, I noticed yesterday that lots of the leaves had, had dropped, and I think probably it's nighttime temperatures, and um, you know, the plant now is shutting down. Um, yeah, got, we you know, are. there's something new every day
2: we're getting some cold, colder nights now actually it dropped mm. down to four here the other the other night so pretty pretty cool and it really has suddenly induced that that color formation you know the plants taking back um uh, any sort chlorophyll. of chlorophyll and pigments mm. it needs and it's revealing all the the carotenoids and the anthocyanins and all that wonderful color but i'm with you with with witch hazel and i love the fact that you get this sort of um as the colour yes. retract back into the plant. It, it, it really is it really is fantastic. And sometimes the autumn colour will be fleeting, but at the moment, finally we don't get any sort of strong, strong winds again and the weather stays relatively as it is, we should have a very good season of autumn colour. I noticed some of those green pillar oaks are starting to colour up quite nicely. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. We maybe have to we maybe have to bring that pastime in America uh, to, over to England. It's called leaf peeping.
2: Is it really? Yes. <laughs> is it when they sort of make the best of the fall, as they call
1: it? Yeah, they go out in the fall and they look at all, all the colours and everything else. And I have to say in America it's fabulous, but they don't have the variety that we have here. I mean, their, their autumn colour tends to be in big blocks of yellows or big blocks of orange. They don't seem to have the, the variety of autumn colour and the variety of plants probably that we grow here.
2: We are, we are lucky in the diversity that we have. And I think as well, a lot of, of, of good gardens in the UK as well. I love that combination of pines and conifers with with autumn with autumn color i think that's wonderful you get these wonderful bright blue spruce and then you get something like um a parotia something like vanessa the the nice fastidiate one near it and you get these wonderful shocking reds and oranges and uh, against that wonderful bright blue i I think i think it's lovely Um, really good contrast really good so what else have you got for show and tell, Ian? So I've got um I had to put hydrangeas in really for this time of year. Um I know Al's a big fan as well, and particularly of this um hydrangea paniculata limelight, which is taking on some wonderful autumn colours. I think I personally I'm, I'm drawn to the paniculata types even more than the mop heads and the lace caps, just for the, the structure that they have and their ease of pruning and ease of maintenance to be honest but paniculata limelight has been very reliable it's been in the garden for five or six years now and it's uh, regularly pruned back quite hard in the spring in order to keep it down to its desired desired height and what's quite nice about it is there are certain hydrangeas that you prune hard for example annabelle which everyone plants annabelle and it's it's a lovely hydrangea but everyone p- cuts it back hard you get these long stems that can't support the big flowers and you end up just having it lay across the ground and get messy whereas paniculatas if you give them a good spring prune which they respond to very well because they produce flowers on current season's growth which is great you get stems that are about sort of 18 inches two feet off them uh, wonderful pure sort of um almost a sort of whitish green then they fade through to a soft green uh, and then Here we are now in in October and these wonderful pink tints to these sterile florets that are around there. And I absolutely love it. I think it's just a beautiful thing for this time of year. So definitely one I would try. Al, you agree?
1: I agree entirely. Yes, absolutely entirely. I think it's a good tip about Annabelle as well, because people, I think it's the name Annabelle that um, people like. Um, But there's a vast range of these hydrangeas now, hydrangea paniculata, from the tallest to the very smallest. Did you like that, from the tallest to the smallest? <laughs> but it, occurs, it also occurs to me that if you're pruning some of these paniculatas, and if you prune one or two stems quite hard, and prune one or two stems half as hard, you mm-hmm. might get a, a, a variation in size of flower, and also in timing as to when they flower, because I think the, the, the le- least hard pruned stems maybe flower a fortnight, three weeks earlier than those pruned hard. Possibly. I don't know. I haven't done it, but it occurs to me that it's worth experimenting.
0: That's a great word. No, great... Yeah. I also <laughs> like how it makes you look a bit like a
2: cheerleader with a cheerleader pom-pom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks very much. Like Thank you. you. I always think I want a flake with it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pom-pom or cornetto, one of the it's two. More like an ice cream. And, and a couple of Marches brought with me. I, I have brought a conifer, big fan of conifers, always have been. Um, and... Um, I think that they're, they're great garden plants for structure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you select them right for the location you've got, they're good things. And this is a, a really odd one. This is uh, a conifer called Sceadopotis, Sceadopotis vasiliata. And it's the umbrella pine, which, once again, I know Al's got it. And it, it's a love, it's it grows in his winter garden at East Ruston. But um, I've got a friend that grows conifers commercially. And I bought this about, oh, 10 years ago. And I planted it as part of a little sort of alpine-y sort of type garden for my mum in an old tin bath, an old tin sort of carry bath. And 10 years later, it's growing at about four feet. It's got a lovely central leader on it. And it just looks fantastic all year. It really is. You get wonderful limey new growth in the spring. You can see with the older leaves a slightly sort of yellowish tint to them before they a bit of autumn colour in there before they might well drop over the over the winter. But I just love it for its odd quirky structure. I've always thought how lovely it'd be to maybe use it as an avenue somewhere or as a, a repetition through a border. Providing you can keep a central leader on it, I think it's a really quirky thing and it will get quite a size eventually. I mean, I've seen them at sort of 20 feet but I mean we're talking a, a long while yet because after 10 years it's only sort of four feet in height, but it's a, it's a lovely thing. And the final show and tell is the wonderful blueberry, all forms of vicinium corymbosum. You know I love blueberries. you know that I'm a big fan of these as garden plants and not only for its fruit, uh, for its flowers, late spring, but for the fantastic autumn color. I mean look at that coming through. that really is absolutely wonderful. beautiful reds, oranges. of purple in there as well and the vicinium's great autumn color great plants containerize them if you've not got an acidic soil they like it a little bit damp through the growing season so we grow ours in in large pots in sources of water to keep them going but as a foliage plant look at that i mean that is just so wonderful isn't it that rich gorgeous red so yeah that's the end of my show and tell is that a blueberry it's a blueberry it is. You can't quite believe it, can you? Because the colour oh, is just yeah. absolutely I know. wonderful. Yeah, Vaccinium corumbosum. I mean, I wax lyrical about how wonderful the autumn colour is, and it just is. The intensity is is amazing. And if you've got an acidic soil or you've got maybe a sort of slightly woodlandy soil, they'd be perfect in a woodland. You may not get an abundance crop of fruit, but you'd get great early flowers for pollinators and wonderful, beautiful autumn colour like that. So I think they should be used much more not only in the fruit garden but as Plants in the ornamental garden as well. Wow. And a show and tell.
1: <laughs> that's quite interesting, actually, because you're crossing over from, um, shall we say, fruit, vegetable type things to almost, it's almost like a theme of cottage gardening, gardening isn't it? Where a plant is both decorative and useful.
2: Yeah, and I, I think, don't you, that that's a way we should probably be going with our gardens, particularly with the way Definitely, life is at yeah. the moment, and it may not be changing for long, is that if plants can give us a small crop and they can be beautiful, a bit like the Asian pears, as you said, you know, if they'd make a wonderful sort of um, espalier divide in the garden, but will also give you wonderful fruit. I think that's fantastic. And I always hark back to those days when Jeff Hamilton did his programmes, like the ornamental kitchen garden, and and that planting, you can still go and see it at his his garden, that planting still stands up now. It may not be the most contemporary, but in terms of what we're going through, of our smaller spaces being universal in their use, and also, let's face it, looking beautiful. We all love beautiful gardens. I think that is a a perfect way to go. So do I. Well, I currently have um, an overwhelming amount of slow-mo
0: uh <laughs> if you're listening to this or watching this, this is the first time you've come across the term flomo it's that the kind of fear of missing out you get when you hear about a plant and you see it in someone's garden or a magazine or on instagram or twitter and you just think i need that in my life um which is kind of my default state of being really particularly when we're recording these podcasts and also going through all the plant catalogues and seed lists at the moment So I want to pick your brains you two great gardeners because every year I want to grow ranunculus but I'm always put off because I imagine they'll be tricky. But then I read a certain uh, seller of of all kinds of fabulous colourful plants said that the butterfly series are easier to grow and I just wanted to check whether that was true and whether easier to grow still meant they were difficult.
1: No, they are. They're very easy to grow. We bought some in the spring. I think they're still in the summer. I mean, I think they're still in their pots, aren't they, Ian?
2: Oh, are these the ones that came from Rosie Hardy?
1: Yes, yes. Ah, they're, yeah, I yeah. can't remember the man's name, but there's a chap who's been working for over 20 years um, on finding strains of the the, the florish ranunculus um, that, that are hardy. Because normally, I mean, I remember Granny used to buy them when I was a kid. Um, and she used to come back from, a, from Norwich Market. There used to be a stall on there that used to sell them. And she, they were like a little brown paper bag full of these little down, downward pointing claws. And you used to plant them and you get these jewel colored flowers. and then you didn't see them again because they died in our hard winters. Well, this chap has been um, experimenting and I think we got four different or three different varieties. Um, and uh, the only thing I would warn you Thunder is that the, the hardy ones are slightly taller uh in in stature than the the ones that granny used to grow so you could be looking at maybe three to four feet tall.
0: You're doing so well to concentrate while your puppies are having the best <laughs> fight behind you.
1: <laughs> well they've just woken up I'm afraid it's what happens. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ian what's your flow-mo? Well mine is of course very seasonal but um I go on quite a lot of walks at weekends when I can and, and I've been really enamoured and quite envious of the swathes and swathes of sycam and heteropholium I've been seeing at the moment and you know around trees, around shrubs, uh, a garden I walked past um, this weekend had them, just a bank of them, a north-facing bank out the front, a base of a yew hedge just covered in these wonderful silvery leaves with those wonderful pink flowers on top and I've always tried to grow cyclamen coom in the past which is one of the wintering sort of more wintry flower ones but i find more and more that that's just being more and more unreliable for me as a plant so i would love to get in some wonderful cyclamen heteropholium i've bought some recently for clients gardens but for myself i'd love to be able to see drift of that wonderful marble foliage going about and i don't know why i've not grown them before and and had them before because i've got the perfect soil for them at my folks place which is pretty free draining i've got lots of um established trees and uh, specimen plants that i could put little carpets around them so it's a plant which we see about a lot i know but it's one that i really want to get into my growing spaces because the variation in that foliage and the shades of pink and white is just absolutely spectacular I, i'm really falling in love with it
1: <laughs> so alan what's your flow mo yours well my flow mo it could be endless, really, but I mean, my flow is actually a couple of plants that I've got um, and I, it's, it's the way you use plants sometimes that makes them, it enhances their star quality, I think you can say that. Um, and we've got Ben Preston, who's the head gardener of uh, York Gate in Leeds, who's coming on the on the podcast in, in well very soon. And when I visited him a couple of years ago in in, um, in York Gate, there was a salvia growing against the wall called Salvia atrocyania. Now, this is a very very tall growing salvia, six seven feet, and it just has these long racemes of blue flowers that come from a black calyx um, and they they kind of get snake-like as so they get older because they, they they sort of um, um, they become wavy, I suppose. And Ben gave me a couple of cuttings. He then visited the garden a year later here and he said to me, have you got my salvia? And I said, yes, it's here, look. And um, so he's, he's seen the salvia and I just was looking at them the other day and I thought, Flomo, this is a good one to do for Flomo because I've got one plant in each place and I should have five or seven because it just makes so much more impact. So uh, yesterday I took, I think, 40 cuttings of Salvia atrocyania and the other salvia that is part of my Flomo is a new one to me called Salvia bolata. And it's one that I'd forgotten I'd gotten. It was I found it neglected in a pot at the back of the greenhouse and I said... Uh, to Jenny, who was helping me clean the greenhouse, I said, well, let's repot it and see what happens. Repotted it, rejuvenated it. Within two months, it's covered with all these lovely palish blue flowers, but with little lime green tips to the ends. They're almost turquoise. And uh, I think I showed it to you yesterday, Thunder, and I was taking cuttings of it. Um, so <laughs> in actual fact, that that, that my, they are my two flummos, both salvias, both late flowering. And like Ian, I mean, I. I I I love spring because of the optimism, but I have a penchant for autumn and autumn flowering plants, and I was just thinking that, you know, with Ian's um, asters, let's call them asters because people know what we're talking about, and his lovely autumn colour, these salvias would be a lovely addition to that scheme, and uh, I think it would make, we could go out with a crescendo, couldn't we? <laughs> Wonderful.
0: And it was nice yesterday because your propagating house has got to be one of my just favourite places in the
1: world. There is so much promise in there. And boy, oh boy, is it packed at the minute. Yes, well, that's partly me being untidy because... Um, you know, there's so many things that you have and you use as, uh, I mean, tools, it could be seed boxes, it could be pots, it could be whatever. Um, But, you know, when you're busy, there isn't time to put them back in their correct piles. So you get little <laughs> bits of this left out and all the rest of it, plus a box of crops, which is always handy on the bench. And of course, um, rooting hormones. And then of course, you've got to make ro- r- room for the vases of flowers that you take off the plants that you've taken cuttings from. And I just can't bear to throw them away. So I've got a pot of salvias and a pot of pelargoniums, both in flower. And pelargoniums, in actual fact, the zonal pelargoniums make wonderful cut flowers. They're very long-lasting. Wonderful.
0: Right, well, I suppose all we've got time for is to fit in one question, which came in, actually, it's good you're here, Ian, because this was a question as a follow-up to your video, a very popular video, about hardwood cuttings. It's easy to take hardwood cuttings. Well, Mark, who is following us from New Mexico, wanted to know a few follow-up questions to your, uh, your hardwood cutting video. So what kinds of plants is it a suitable method for? Does the plant need to be dormant when you take the cuttings? When you've got them, do you keep those, those um, potted cuttings outside or indoors? Is there an optimum temperature to get the roots to grow and then how do you know whether they're rooted at all are you supposed to wait for there to be lots of leaves there w- what's the what's your advice for that so quite a
2: lot of questions as I <laughs> well I'll, I'll if I answer a couple of those and I will can do a couple and then yeah we're good so in terms of what plants you can use for hardwood cuttings I mean as a rule I generally keep the hardwood cutting option for shrubby things as a rule so it could be shrub roses it could be philadelphus, it could be wigilas, it could be anything that's got a good woody structure to it. Cornus is another great one and obviously willows and that sort of thing, but a good woody structure. So they're all plants which lend themselves well to hardwood cuttings. The thing about hardwood cutting is they're easy because you take them about 30 centimetres long, think of a pencil, you cut above a bud then you cut below a bud, you strip all the foliage off if there's foliage on, which, which links in with the question that does the plant have to be dormant? The answer is no, you can take hardwood cuttings off a a plant which is in active growth, if you think to do it at that time. Um, and then you strip the foliage off before you put that hardwood cutting in. Another important thing is, do you put the hardwood cutting in a pot or the garden? Well, I tend to use rose pots, and I think I was quite a fan of this as well. Rose pots are great for hardwood cuttings because you've got that depth. And the biggest mistake people do make with hardwood cuttings is they leave too much of it above ground. Even though it's a woody piece of material, it's still going to be transpiring and losing moisture. So when i put hardwood cuttings in i only ever leave two buds or two bud scars above the ground the rest should be below ground or in compost that's the important thing if you've got space at home you could put them in the garden you could have a nursery bed and you just take out a trench with your spade put a bit of sand in the bottom and and away you go they're the two options but i like using rose pots because i can move them about easy once they've sort of rooted i can or once they're in the routing process, I I can move them about in my stock area if I need to. Sometimes certain things, I will put them on the heated bench. If I'm working at Mr Gray's and we've got a particular thing we want, I'll put it on the heated bench, which will of course speed up the callusing process and the routing process. But as a rule with hardwood cuttings, you can just put them outside somewhere sheltered and leave them, but you have to leave them at least a year, at least a year for them to go. And what else did he ask Thunder? Because Al's going to do those ones. Okay, so Can I just say one thing before
1: we, before we go any further? Um, I would say have a go with any plant that you're pruning in the winter from hardwood cuttings. I mean it could be Philadelphia's, it could be Wagellia's, it could be any kind of shrub that you're pruning in the winter. Have a go because if, if they root that's wonderful, if they don't you haven't lost anything. The other thing I'd say that when you're doing a hardwood cutting quite often it's difficult to get the base of the cutting to callus and you can increase the chances of the, of the bottom of the cut in callusing, which is what they do prior to rooting. Um, and a callus is like a lumpy uh, protrusion on the end of the stem, if you like. You, you take the side opposite the dormant bud and you make a little nick with a very sharp knife, um, something less than an eighth of an inch, but you just take a little thin layer of bark off and that will induce callusing. It's just a, a little trick that some propagators use.
0: Wow. So I suppose the only final question from Mark was about knowing whether they've rooted or not. And I've seen you, Alan, particularly with softer material, I've seen you sort of testing whether things have rooted. I saw
1: you doing it yesterday. You did, yeah, well, you give them a little tug, um, but that's really for soft-rooted plants. I don't think you can do that for hardy, uh, yeah. uh, hard, uh, win- the, the cuttings that we're talking about. <laughs> um, and I think you've just got to wait for the signs of life above the ground. And then when you see the plant is actually putting on leaves, um, Ian says uh, quite rightly that, you know, they do take a year before they're ready to be transplanted or something. I, I would l- quite happily leave things for two years, if, if necessary, until they've got some good strong growth on them. And the one little thing that Ian has taught me about doing cuttings, this is not hardwood cuttings, I know, but about doing cuttings, is that when we take our brugmancias in for the winter, we cut the tops off and we cut them back quite a long way. Um, and we don't throw all of that material away. We throw 90% of it away, but the other 10%, he probably cuts into short lengths, about, about 30 centimetres long. Um, it's almost like a naked stem. And you just push that around the edge of a, a deep pot, a rose pot or a long tom, and you put them on the warm bench and they root. And they will stay in that kind of, almost like hibernated state until next spring. And I mean, the spring can be even as, a, as late as June. Um, you know, which is really summer, uh, before you repot them and suddenly when you repot them, boy, do they go for it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's when you're taking cuttings, I think the two things to, to bear in mind is have a go at everything, but have fun.
0: Oh, and on great. that note, uh, I have had a whole lot of fun over the last hour, however long we've been talking, it's flown by. So
2: thank you, Ian. Thank you. Really good fun. Thanks for having me along. Really enjoyed
1: it. Oh, you're, you're a nice fella we love
2: you happy gardening
1: all happy gardening Bye. bye
0: bye hey thordis here just to say thank you so much for listening to talking dirty you are now officially our favorite person if you really liked it please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant loving mayhem next week and as you're our new favorite person we don't want you to miss out If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening. And we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.